Hello, and welcome to this week's Key Voices, conversations with folk in and around education. I'm Caroline Doherty, and this week I am talking mental health with Andy Meller. Now, Andy is the strategic lead for the Carnegie Centre of Excellence in Mental Health in Schools, based at Leeds Beckett University, and the National Wellbeing Director for Schools Advisory Service. He is also a former head teacher. So we're talking about particularly the role of the senior mental health lead in school, exactly what that person is responsible for, how they might be trained, and some of the ways in which they could be effective. We're also considering whole school approaches to mental health, the critical importance for staff and and school leaders to look after themselves, um, particularly at this really difficult time we're experiencing right now. He also gives some very practical advice from his own time in school. And I really like how he explains his vision for being the best version of yourself, which is about your mental health, but also about how you're learning. Those two things are inextricably linked um, and it's not an either or situation uh, that you can you can work on academics and and being confident and um, empathetic and all of these things. So if that's, that's some really interesting um, ideas for you there. The podcast is an opportunity to open up debate and discussion about topics. The views my guest and I are about to express are not the view of the key. For in-depth information about the latest articles in education, check out thekeysupport.com. Hello. Today, I am joined by Andy Meller. Now, Andy is the strategic lead for the Carnegie Centre of Excellence in Mental Health in Schools, based at Leeds Beckett University, and the National Wellbeing Director for Schools Advisory Service. Hello, Andy. Hi, good morning. Hi, Andy. And Andy is also um, a former head teacher. And we're going to have uh, a conversation today about, about mental health in schools uh, in, in, in lots of different aspects of that. So thank you very much for joining me, Andy. Shall we just kick off with you telling the listeners a little bit about yourself and your career to date? Yeah, I uh, started teaching in the last century. It seems a long time ago now, 1988. Um, but I, I guess critically, um, I've been a school leader in Blackpool for the last 21 years. Um, during that time, uh, I joined my school as head teacher at um, St Nicholas Primary School in Blackpool um, as head in 2003, um, and we managed to get the school to outstanding in March 2016. And we did that. Um, there were no great secrets around um, putting through children through 12-hour days or catch-up or you know, testing them more, uh, we basically embedded a well-being approach to teaching and learning, which actually had people being the best version of themselves they possibly could be. And that that got us where we we, we, we got to as an outstanding school. And it, it also shaped very much my philosophy of the way that I think schools in challenging areas sometimes need to have different ways of achieving outstanding because they, the default model um, is, is, is not necessarily one that's going to be successful in Blackpool but as a result of the the success we had um, I wanted to be able to support other schools in Blackpool Uh, so we opened the Blackpool Teaching School in November 2016. Um, I joined the uh, Opportunity Area Board in Blackpool and was there until I left my headship in December 2019. Um, I'm still a member of the Blackpool Education Improvement Board um, through my role as the independent chair of uh, Blackpool Matt CEO Group. Um, I was national president of the NEHT between 2018 and 2019. I'm still on the national executive with the NEHT with a particular interest in school business leaders uh, because I think there's a, there's a real piece of work there to be done in terms of thoroughly understanding the capacity that a, a, a great school business leader brings to, to schools. Um, I now currently work as a National Wellbeing Director for Schools Advisory Service four days a week, making a difference to schools in terms of wellbeing, and we're very much putting wellbeing at the forefront of our our agenda. Um, And so when the Carnegie Centre of Excellence for Mental Health in Schools approached me, 
um, when my term of office of, of running the teaching school finished in August term 21, um, I, I grabbed the opportunity with both hands because the wellbeing agenda and the, and the children's mental health, staff mental health agenda is so critical at the moment that um, it was a real opportunity, maybe in the last five or six years of my career to make a, make a real difference. Wow. Um, I'm sure people listening um, to, to, to you talk about what you've um, achieved in your career to date, probably thinking, gosh, about five podcasts here. <laughs> Let's talk about school business managers capacity. Uh, but um, that's really fascinating. And obviously, Blackpool, really challenging area to, to, to work in as, as well. Lots of um, deprivation and, and challenge there. And over your, over your long um, uh, career in school leadership, how have you noticed people's mental health needs changing? I think there's a, there's a sense that um, things are as bad now as they've ever been in terms of mental ill health um, in society as, as well as, as schools. And I think schools are just a microcosm of society. But um, going back to 1988, you know, there were children who I worked with who I would have said, uh, suffer from mental ill health right back in 1988 and probably predating that as well. However, I think there are two main differences here. I think the numbers of pupils with mental ill health has grown hugely. And I think back in 88, we were probably talking about maybe one in 30 uh, with mental health needs. Um, research now tells us that we're talking about maybe nine in every class of 30 having a mental health need. So I think the numbers have changed quite dramatically. And, and obviously with the numbers, the pressure on staff to be able to address those needs. And I think the complexity of those needs have become a lot more varied. You know, with the advent of things like social media, there are issues arising from all of this. And, and statistically, we know we've got more children living in poverty than any time in the span of my teaching career. And we know that poverty is a key factor which increases the likelihood of mental illness. So it does feel a little bit at the moment like schools are running full tilt to keep up with a tide of need, which feels like it's likely to swamp schools unless we invest more in preventative support for pupils rather than just addressing with resource those that are at a crisis point. Yeah, and as you say, I mean, um, it sort of feels like, you know, as we know, COVID has increased some of these inequalities and, and thrown some of these things into sharper relief. But the situation was was building before the pandemic as well. Very much so. Very much so. And, um, you know, those people who are heroically running running schools are facing challenges on so many fronts we've got you know we're talking at the beginning of November and we know that staff and pupil absence is, is on the, is on the rise because of rising uh, COVID infections uh, challenges around around catch-up um, you know tight tight funding environment as well as looking after their own their staffs and their pupils and, and parents and families well-being what what would you say to somebody currently currently in that hot seat um i think there's some there's some words of advice really from um 21 years of, of school leadership albeit not in the midst of, of a pandemic but I, I think some of it is just basic um common sense advice which is first of all look after yourself um, and make sure that you look after those people around you as a school leader. Um, you know, I think schools and senior leaders are past masters at making bad situations work. Um, but schools are currently on their knees. Um, and if you combine all of this with decreasing funding levels um, and increasing levels of responsibility, it does feel that we're meeting or we're coming close to um, a breaking point for schools. Um, and as a school leader, you can you can do a lot of things to positively impact on this, um, but but that is limited by the amount of resource that you have, um, and that's one of the reasons why um, at the centre we've actually made the senior mental health leads community free to all senior mental health leads in schools. Um, it's an opportunity to come together and discuss uh, school-based mental health and to learn from each other, and I think. 
there are certain posts in school, head teacher is one of them, school business leader is another. And I think senior mental health lead falls into this category where there is only one of you in the school. So the, the, the feeling of isolation is quite evident um, for people in those particular roles. And I think coming together as a community and as a network and sharing solutions, uh, you know, what they say about a problem, a problem uh, shared is a problem halved. You know, I think that is, is, is really pertinent in all of this. And you know, I think the community allows us to do that. And we are meeting together. Um, we have been doing since the, the, the community was launched back in September. Um, and we're bringing together growing numbers of senior mental health leads. We've got between five and 600 senior mental health leads now coming together to share some of the solutions to some of the things they're facing in, in school. And it's not about the centre prescribing a solution. It's about people working in schools telling us what is working in their school so that we can actually have school-based solutions rather than uh, maybe sort of an externally based solution. So I would say take care of your own health and well-being uh, because if you do become ill, you, you can't support those people around you. Um, and staff and pupils being well is critical to schools moving forward. So do prioritise well-being. Um, and I often hear that schools face a choice between well-being and better Ofsted outcomes. You know, quite often I'll have this conversation and people say, well, I can't do well-being, I'm in the Ofsted window. Um, what we found out as a school, uh, and I can't claim that there was some massive strategy behind all of this, and that I, it was all pre-planned, but it was um, in some ways an unintended consequence. We actually changed the way we worked with our learners. We gave teachers uh, flexibility and autonomy to teach in a different way. And we engaged our learners in a very different way. And what that did was give everybody a sense of autonomy and freedom to be able to express themselves and be the best version of themselves as teachers and learners. And surprise, surprise, we found that outcomes improved. Um, and I have been, I've been through the Ofsted framework and the overall effectiveness grades for the Ofsted framework actually tie in quite nicely with well-being activities that we did in school. So these two are not exclusive of each other. If you get the well-being right and you put well-being at the heart of your pedagogy and your relationships in school, then Ofsted will recognise it based on the overall effectiveness grades. The third thing I would suggest is that you create a plan to raise awareness from the whole school community of what really good well-being looks like. Um, and then you've all got a common understanding of what we're trying to achieve collectively. Do you know, there are so many definitions of the word well-being out there that if we don't actually pull all of this together and have a community conversation about what well-being is in our community and what it means to be well, both mentally and physically, then we can actually be going off in different directions, trying to find different solutions for things. So, you know, it is really important that we have a common definition. And I talk about the, I want everybody being the best version of themselves, both personally and professionally. And we can't separate those two out because your personal well-being affects your professional well-being and vice versa. So there are, there are examples of schools who've weathered the impact of COVID really well because they've had a really strong well-being culture prior to the pandemic. And, you know, I'm going to embarrass them now, but primary school of the year, Kensington Primary School down in Newham, um, I had the pleasure of visiting them very recently um, and, and what they're doing is, is just staggering in terms of, of staff and pupil well-being but it's very much shared with parents in the community as well um, and, and what we found is that schools like that have been able to cope with the challenges of the pandemic uh, better than schools who are at the start of the journey so it's never too late to start this journey uh, and, and you know you are able to address much of the challenge that we, we talked about in your question through a well-being lens and, and Kensington are a perfect example of that. Yeah, and I think you've, you've raised so many important points there, particularly thinking about um, that kind of perceived conflict between well-being and, you know, school improvement or academic results and that the, actually the, the two are intimately connected. And even if um, you were to achieve maybe that, improvement if it came at the expense of well-being it would not be sustainable for anybody 
involved and and as you say there's this this journey and this continuation well-being is not a one-off activity and equally um important you you've highlighted there that it's a personal um response to you know what what makes you as an individual thrive and learn and 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 be the best version of yourself so that there is this you know subtle subtle difference it isn't just a one-size-fits-all kind of solution um, it's an environment that people can 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 make choices for themselves, and that autonomy, as you were saying, is is so crucial there. Um, absolutely, absolutely, and, and um, you know, one of the things that we learned quite quickly, I guess, um, and and I guess if 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 you're listening to this and you work in a school in a challenging community, is that the whole notion of doing more of what has struggled to have an impact in terms of catch up and just loading children with loads more knowledge in the hopes that it'll stick is, is, is a flawed concept because so many of the children that we've worked with, I've worked with over the years in, in, you know, I've worked across the foul coast in Fleetwood and Blackpool and in Birmingham. So many of the children I've worked with have had real, um, I wouldn't say it's yet mental illness, but I would say stresses and traumas in their early lives that have put them in a position um, where their amygdala has taken over um, their ability to be able to learn. So if you're aware of amygdala hijack and the fact that the amygdala puts us in fight or flight mode, um, that's a situation that a lot of our children find themselves in. So if you as a teacher think that you're going to give them lots of knowledge and somehow it's going to stick and they're going to be able to regurgitate it in the SATs and then the school is good, that's just not going to work. So what we have to do to be, out, be able to access the thinking part of our brain, that frontal cortex, is we have to soothe the amygdala. And soothing the, the amygdala is about giving children autonomy. That, that sense of control over some parts of their lives, which stress and trauma rob them of. Um, and I think if we can actually do that, and, that, and much of what we did inadvertently was to do that and actually give them access to the thinking parts of their brains that they were able to learn. And that's why working in challenging communities is different to working in other communities where there isn't that level of challenge. Mm, and the, the amount of time it actually takes for um you know that that amygdala process to, to to calm down so that 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 can happen that it isn't just as something that you can kind of switch off and and switch on again especially at that age um that yeah it, 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 i think that's a, that's a really um important uh f- information for people to be aware of and maybe we can we can link to some some more resources there for people to understand that in a bit more detail if it is new to you um so you you mentioned earlier there the the senior mental health leads um and and a bit bit about your your work to support them there for anybody who who might have have missed a thorough explanation of these roles can you tell us a little bit more about the vision for them i think the the whole idea of of senior mental health leads in schools is to coordinate some of the work that has been done by quite often the head or the deputy or somebody with availability um, and it's putting and um, putting senior mental health leads in a position where we give them the training to be able to um, I guess not not assess but provide them with the wherewithal to um, direct and support those children and the increasing numbers of children we're getting into our schools who uh, who have mental ill health uh, and, and mental health, ill health on that spectrum. And some of the, the sort of spectrum of mental ill health are things that schools will be able to support themselves. Others will need um, signposting to specialist intervention. And having somebody in school who has an understanding of all of this. And I, I think my experience is that in schools, this has developed as a necessary part of schools' response to mental ill health and the growth in, of mental ill health in schools. Um, but actually what this does is formalizes the role and provides these people with the training to be able to do the job far more effectively. You know, one of the things that I am acutely aware of though, particularly in smaller schools, 
is the extent to which there are people available and free to be able to do this work. You know, some of the smaller, maybe one form entry primary schools, you've got you've got teachers who are coordinating three and four different subject areas. Um, and this is a, yet another area for them to be able to lead and coordinate. And whilst the training is being provided, which is absolutely brilliant, um, funding for people to be able to do the role and be out of class to do the role uh, is, is a challenge that I think um, school leaders are facing, particularly in smaller schools. So um, I do think that needs looking at because allowing people the time to be able to do this work rather than it being just an another additional task at the end of the school day, I think is absolutely key to, to the success of the role. Yes, no, I completely understand what you're you're saying there. Andy, could you tell us a little bit more about the the training for senior mental health lead roles? Yeah, so the training for um, senior mental health providers, uh, we, we, we've asked them to look at eight principles to promoting a whole school or college approach to mental health and well-being um, and, and all of those are really key they're, they're underpinned by uh, leadership and management that supports and champions efforts to promote emotional health and well-being and obviously the leadership and management aspect of it is really really important because that's what's going to drive it on a day-to-day -day basis but what we'd be looking for as well is, is a development of an ethos and environment that promotes respect and values diversity. Um, we're looking at curriculum, teaching and learning to promote resilience and support social and emotional learning. And again, you know, that was much of what we did at St. Nicholas. Um, as I say, inadvertently, uh, but that, that was an area that we, we, we picked up on. Um, so, it, it, you know, mental health, senior mental health leads will need to be working on both of those things, enabling student voice, to influence decisions because that level of autonomy and involvement and engagement is really, really key. Um, staff development, um, we, you know, we'd want our senior mental health leads to be looking at um, helping staff to support their own well-being and that of the student. So it's not just about student well-being, but it's also about staff well-being as well. Um, we'd be expecting them to identify need and monitor the impact of the interventions and the strategies that they're putting in place. Um, I think a really key part of the role is actually working with parents and carers, because um, as I say, when you discuss the word well-being or mental health, it can mean all sorts of things to different people. Um, and it's really important that we have the support of parents in addressing the needs of their children so that both staff and students can be in the very best place for, to learn and to be the best version of themselves possible. Um, and then there is a bit more of the sort of more clinical um, role, part of the role, which is the target support and appropriate referral. So as I, as I mentioned, it's, you know, a lot of this is about um, being proactive within school um, and creating the right culture and ethos within school. Um, but I suppose at the other end of the spectrum, there is the more targeted su support uh, and knowing when to refer to the likes of CAMS and, and beyond. And, you know, the, I think the what we're trying to do with all of this is try and develop uh, a culture in schools. If you can imagine a spectrum of plus 10 to minus 10 um, and the zero to minus 10 is where we've worked historically. So when people have fallen over when they've fallen ill, whether it be physical or mental ill health, we've tended to intervene. And whether that means going to the doctor, whether that means a referral to CAMS, but generally speaking, things are bad enough to need to go and to get external support. What we're trying to do with this approach is try and move organizations to a point where we are day-to-day -day looking at the zero to plus 10. So how do we get people into the very best place they can be for themselves as individuals, but also as professionals uh, and learners? And you know, if we can do that proactively, hopefully we won't need to do as much of the, the sort of remedial, the, the interventionist sort of work that has been the traditional um, stock in trade, really, I suppose. Schools have been involved in that zero to minus 10 bit um, and really good schools have been involved in the zero to plus 10 bit, but this embeds it within the training of the senior mental health leads so that we're able to be a lot more proactive moving forwards. 
you, you've sort of talked about that um, that that space where young people do need access to that that professional support, and and kind of how do you draw the line between what a school, say with a well trained um, senior mental health lead, can can provide, and and where that external support is needed. I think. You know, having people trained, and this is why these are senior mental health leads. Um, you know, it, it's really important that these people have uh, the ability to be able to affect the way the organisation works. Um, so I think previously, in my experience of working in schools, um, you know, typically the SENCO would probably be picking up um, not just learning difficulties, but children with social and emotional difficulties, even mental health illness. Um, and, you know, they would, they would be making referrals to the likes of uh, CAMS for external support. Um, and, and that would be it, really. And I think what this allows us to do, this new role allows us to do, is to say, actually, there's a better way of doing what we're doing to support the mental health of all of our learners and our staff in school. And this is why I say that it does need funding for release, because this is not something you're gonna be able to do in an hour after school. You know, that you can send referrals off in an hour or two after school, but actually this is about changing the culture of the way that we work in schools. Um, and the senior mental health lead has to have an in with the leadership team if they're not already part of the leadership team to be able to effect that sort of change. Um, and when I say change, I, I do mean in some ways quite a fundamental change. So um, the way we looked at it in, in my school, just to give you an example, um, was that we found that a lot of our learners um, came to school with stresses and traumas that, that affected their ability to be able to learn. So what we had to do is try and develop an approach that really embraced those children as individuals, calmed them their, and, and their stress responses, and then got them into the classrooms to get them totally engaged in what they were doing with their learning. And I think if they're met with a row of chairs facing the front, with the teacher spending six or seven hours of filling them with knowledge, you know, I, I would struggle with that. I don't know many adults that would cope with that sort of approach. I think the average time is 20 minutes before we switch off. Um, and if children switch off, they'll find other things to do. And then that affects the, the learning capability of all children. So um, what we tried to do was to try and engage our learners with all sorts of different strategies. And, you know, if I, if I just mention a, a few of them, um, one, one of the things that we found was we thought we were having class discussions. Um, and what we found was that the teacher was asking a question, probably this, one of the same four or five children were answering the question time and time again. Um, and others felt disenfranchised from the whole learning process. Um, consequently, when we did have conversations, one-to-one -one conversations between children, quite often they didn't have the skills to be able to build those conversations without the conversation breaking down uh, and then getting, getting quite offensive with each other. So um, what we did was we scaffolded them. We, we, we gave them the vocabulary of three different phrases, agree, build on and challenge. And what we said to the children is, we want you to have a class discussion. The teacher's gonna set you off, but then the teacher's gonna sit back and we want you to have a discussion with each other. Now that in itself was quite a challenging concept. Um, but the children used the language of agree, build on and challenge uh, and quite enjoyed using it to listen to each other. Again, a key skill um, and, and to be able to build on uh, or challenge sensitively things that people had said and what that did if you look at the offset framework that's one of the key factors of overall effectiveness is the fact that the children are able to listen to each other talk to each other and have a conversation um, and the teacher facilitates that um, and we were able to do that without it being um, breaking down without children falling out with each other but the well-being aspect of that means that you're developing self-esteem, you're developing resilience, you're developing empathy, all of those key skills that every teacher in the profession 
came into the profession to teach children and young people. And what we've probably ended up with is an education that is about filling them with knowledge to pass a test. And we've got to move away from that a little bit and try and develop the whole learner. Um, so that's one of the things we, we did as well. Um, another one of the things we did was we wanted to, um, as, a, as a staff, we wanted to give the children more involvement in their own assessment of their own learning in terms of where they, where they were. So we gave them uh, quite often three or four different access points to the same content. So depending on where they felt they were in terms of their own learning, they, they could actually access the content at three differentiated or four differentiated levels according to their ability. Now, what that did was provided a level of challenge and engagement because children were making an assessment of where they felt they were themselves to be able to uh, engage with the learning at the level that they thought they were at. Again, control, autonomy, really key for well-being. Um, what we then did at the end of the session is we asked them to peer assess and self-assess and that's about being confident with each other to share what they think they know their learning and what comes next um, and as we built that we then asked them to justify their their learning which is uh, the, these are higher order learning skills and they're all very much about developing well-being um, so, I mean, there are two strategies there tied in with a lot of work around growth mindset um, and something ridiculously simple like having a conversation with the whole school community that making mistakes is OK. It's a key part of learning. And so much of that liberated parents and children. It's OK to make a step mistake. It's not the end of the world. But for children who have stresses and traumas and are on the edge of fight or flight, sometimes this can have a major impact on, on their, their learning, on their well-being. So all of this package, and I've, I've captured it all. I'm going to write a book about this one day, but I'm, I've captured it all in a presentation. Um, and I'm doing a training session with a group of governors this, week in, this weekend in Blackpool um, on just how to build pupil well-being. And so much of it is around the, the relationship we have and the roles that we have in the classroom vis-a-vis -vis teacher and learner and and as you say so much of this is linked into into learning and and academic progress but it's it's intimately entwined with the the confidence um, ability to express yourself autonomy and these other things that are going to have this positive impact on on mental health and as you say the importance of the person who is 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 responsible for this being able to influence or being on that senior leadership team to say hang on a minute this is what I'm seeing in these children what can we do what can we change what can we start to think about developing as part of everything else we're doing in the school and it's not this just mental health niche over here it's it's intimately linked to everything else absolutely and that's why the role is so key and it's a senior role um and just to draw your attention as well and and, and listeners might want to look this up but daniel pink's written a book called drive and in there he talks about autonomy mastery and purpose as being three things that are really key for well-being autonomy we've talked about already Mastery is key because it's about upskilling yourself so that you're able to do what you're, whether you're a teacher or, or anybody working in school or a learner, you're able to do that task far more effectively, mm -hmm. which, is, which is good for your well-being. And purpose is absolutely key. You know, what we've seen over the, uh, over the last five or six years is a, a drift away from teaching of a lot of teachers because they don't see the role of teaching has been what they came into the profession to do and, and giving teachers a sense of purpose around developing the whole child and the well-being of the whole child, which then turbocharges learning, I think is, is, is really key. And, you know, for, for pupils coming into school, you know, what, what's, if I'm a pupil coming into school, what's my purpose? Just to sit there and listen and be filled with information so I can pass a test? I, I don't see a value in that personally. Um, you know, I'm not saying that knowledge isn't important. It's, it's the building blocks of a whole load of other skills. But I think the, the level of focus we've got on purely knowledge and understanding is disproportionate to all the other skills that we want to develop, which actually nurture more well-being.
Yes, indeed. And I mean, we I feel like we've talked about this quite a bit, but in terms of the, the, the training and support available to the senior mental health leads, how much of that is is really about these these things that we've been talking about, really, this kind of pr- prevention and kind of positive uh, approaches to mental health and, and how much of it is, is, is to sort of tool people up for, you know, facing these really challenging situations when you are supporting a people in crisis? Um, well, I, I, yeah, I mean, this is where I would say schools need to be quite judicious in terms of um, judging who they want to do their training for them. Um, because um, I've been involved in the quality assurance process of training providers um, over the summer. Um, and there are a lot of different courses out there, a lot, a lot of different forms of training, um, some of which will suit some schools better than others. So I would say be really judicious about it. I'm bound to say that actually a well-rounded training um, provision from uh, the Carnegie Centre of Excellence is going to be your best bet because we've actually developed a tool, which is an audit tool, which actually, if you carry that audit out, it gives you an opportunity to be pointed to the best form of training um, that, that we have on offer. Uh, and the one that's most appropriate to your school. So, um, you know, the, the, the training courses that I've looked at will, to a greater or lesser extent, have different facets within them. Some of them um, are, are quite focused on the more clinical side of it. Some of them, to a greater or lesser extent, are focused on some of the things we've been talking about in terms of preventative. Some of them are, are basic courses that are around skilling people up with the basic knowledge of being a mental health lead but I think that word senior for me is really key and it and it has to be somebody who can affect that sort of change and if you have a teaching assistant who is a senior member of staff then fine give it to a teaching assistant but I I I think the senior mental health lead has to be able to not only refer but have the power to be able to meet with senior leaders to change the culture in school and that then needs to be a senior member of staff and potentially a really exciting opportunity and um you know professional direction for somebody because this is you know such a huge issue in schools that i visit pupils that i talk to um you know school leaders that i talk to uh and it and it really does does feel like as you're saying a lot of people um, you know, it, this is the kind of stuff that they really want to be doing in their careers. So this is this is a great kind of opportunity for them to explore that in more in more detail. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this this is, this is sort of the, the the bit that often comes when you talk about um, a whole school um, approach to mental health and, and well-being. But is there is there an anticipation that the, the person in this in this role will support staff mental health as well as people mental health? Yeah, and and you know that that's increasingly uh, a, a, a big issue, and um, I think we could be drawn into such is the prevalence of pupil mental ill health that we could find ourselves just dealing with. I think when it comes to staff. Uh, mental health and well-being uh, I think there's a different approach yet again and and this is again why it needs to be a senior member of staff uh, or a senior role because what we currently have in school if we have a member of staff who, who presents with mental ill health in the same way um, as we do with physical ill health we would use the occupational health service to be able to support that member of staff um, what what we need to do, though, is, uh, you know, I've, I've just talked about focusing on that zero to minus 10 aspect when it re- when it's to do with staff. Um, I think the zero to plus 10 aspect for staff is, is really looking at developing a, a strong well-being culture right across the school that promotes and develops um, strong mental health and well-being proactively. Um, and that's where again, cultural change needs to take place if it's not already in, in place. Um, and so much of that is around relationships and and what I call the way we do things here, mm. you know, and, and so much of that has to be co-constructed and co-created with staff. Um, 
But again, I come back to that definition of well-being, because if we all understand what we're talking about, and we all understand that well-being is a spectrum that mental health sits on or mental ill health sits on somewhere, then we can actually, as a staff, start to co-construct stuff that is really meaningful. Because from time to time, I hear about uh, well-being initiatives that um, that are almost um, small random acts of kindness that happen from time to time. And, and, and you've got to be really careful that that isn't viewed as tokenistic because that then becomes counterproductive. But if they sit within a whole school culture of strong mental health and well-being, then we're in a place where everybody knows what we're talking about. Everybody understands that well-being isn't the job of the head. You know, it's the job of every single one of us. Every single one of us is responsible for our own well-being. So, you know, if, for example, uh, you're not getting enough sleep, or, or you're skipping meals, or you're not getting enough exercise, all of those are personal areas of responsibility that we need to make personal decisions about for ourselves so that we can be in the best place for ourselves personally and professionally. Um, yes, the head, the senior mental health lead will have a level of uh, responsibility or duty of care, but, but it's actually coming together rather than thinking it's one or the other's role, it's coming together to create something that everybody buys into. Um, and I think that's where the really positive work can really start to take place. And you, you, you know immediately, and I knew at Kensington when I walked into that school, how, how strong the, the culture was, the wellbeing culture was in that school, but it did stem from, from the head. You know, he, he set the tone when he first went in. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's about senior staff nurturing and maintaining that and not necessarily walking past behaviours that counter that, you know, because what you walk past, you condone. Um, so it is about day to day. It is about culture. Um, it is a journey. It isn't about individual activities that might be constituted as well-being activities. Um, so, you know, positive staff mental health and well-being has to be seen as a proactive journey, a proactive development. And at the heart of that has to be workload because the workload is the, is the factor that draws us away from all those things that we know we should be doing, like getting more sleep, getting more exercise. Um, and interestingly, I had a conversation with Kensington um, <clears throat> about something that um, I'm really quite passionate about and I think this is this is something that we could see grow quite um quite develop quite quite a lot um I'm going to have a conversation with one of these companies who deliver food to your door you know like I'm not going to name companies because there are others available um but they essentially they develop you um a, a box with food in for the week so that when you come home of an evening everything's in the fridge you don't need to go shopping you just set to and you make it um, now, I know Kensington have adopted the idea and got a well-known company in to provide that for staff. Um, and what that does is that creates time during the week. Instead of having to go shopping for food, it's all there in the fridge. It's a healthy meal. They're ticking a lot of boxes in terms of giving staff time back, making sure that staff are well-fed, well-nourished, and maybe the time they get back they could use for exercise. So, you know, I think there are solutions to all of this. But more than anything, the message that that sends out to the staff and the community is that we value your well-being. Um, and that's where we need to get to. Mm. Yeah, lots, lots of stuff to think about there. Thank you for that. And um, uh, you, you mentioned earlier um, the Carnegie Centre's um, audit and, and some of the training that they have available. But could you maybe tell us a little bit more about exactly what the Carnegie Centre of Excellence in Mental Health is and how you are supporting them in your role as strategic lead? Yeah, I mean, essentially, we're, in, we're a part of Leeds Beckett University. Um, there are a number of centres at Leeds Beckett University and the Carnegie Centre of Excellence for Mental Health is just one of those. Um, and, uh, and what we do is we provide schools and professionals within schools with training development and tools to help audit and develop mental health provisions in school. Um, we have a number of awards um, that are audit tools in, in essence that help us to do that. 
So we've got the much acclaimed Mentally Healthy Schools Award, which is a really useful scaffold if you are looking at um, beginning this journey uh, to use it as an audit to, to sort of build a plan in terms of um, charting a way forward on your journey. Um, so I would recommend that. Um, I have to say this, it, it's, it's, I think it's about £400, but if you are a schools advisory service client, then it's free. So, because uh, we sponsor the award. Um, the Supervision in Schools Award is another one of those awards that is, is something that will help you to build um, positive supervision in school. And so it's a lot of information around what supervision is and how you build a supervision culture in school. And that, again, you know, I'm coming across uh, very, very often in my conversations with school leaders that supervision is something that they, they might go to a multi-agency multi meeting and, and health police um, and, and other professionals, local authority professionals, will come away from that fairly traumatic meeting. It might be a safeguarding meeting um, and will have a supervision session. So they're not carrying all of this stuff around with them mentally. Um, schools seem to be the only places where that doesn't happen routinely. And, you know, the Supervision in Schools Award is a way of getting supervision on the agenda in schools. Um, and again, the, there is a policy that SAS do with um, NEHT, which actually, actually has supervision embedded within it. So, you know, it, we are recognising increasingly that supervision is really important. But the Supervision in Schools Award is well worth having a look at. Um, there is also um, a training module for, for governors as well. And I think, you know, we haven't really spoken very much about governors, but I think governors are really important in, first of all, understanding our school definition of well-being and what that is, and then what to look for and the sort of questions to ask senior leaders in schools about what, what well-being looks like in school and how well we're doing with well-being. Um, so that training module is well worth having a look at um, it's well worth having a look at and, and getting your governors on board with. Um, what we've done with the community is we've set up the community to look at all sorts of things. So we're very mindful of the fact that there needs to be an opportunity for senior mental health leads to come together and, and share solutions and some of the, the challenges they're facing in school. Um, because that's where you, you actually get some of those issues resolved by learning from people maybe who've been on that journey already. We are um, looking to provide support as well. So one of the sessions we have is a support session. So you can actually come along and have a bit of a clinic with um, some of the people at, uh, at the center. Um, we very recently had um, a session where we invited Andrew Cowley, um, who's written a book. Uh, well, he's written a few books, but the most recent one being the Wellbeing Curriculum: Embedding Children's Wellbeing in Primary Schools. Um, and what we do is we ask Andrew to come along, or the author to come along, and we ask one of our community to read the book and have a conversation with Andrew about his book. And then there are opportunities for people to be able to ask questions about the book. And what that does is it's a really good way. Uh, for teachers who are time poor to be able to to sort of hear about some of the books that are out there uh, and think well that maybe is one I want to read cover to cover or I know enough about the information or I can dig into that book to find the information I need so that's another one we're also in the process um, of working with our senior mental health leads tying them into some of the work of the uh, professors within the university to try and create and collaborate on creating new tools for schools as well. Um, and some of those will find them the way into professional development opportunities as well for the wider community. So it is a really dynamic and varied community. There are lots of different opportunities for senior mental health leads to get involved in a range of things. You don't have to be on your own with this. Um, we're here to support so please do join us and it's free to join so uh, and I get a ping on my, uh, my my emails every time somebody joins and literally we're getting people joining day and night and we are getting people joining from around the world as well so it's um, it's really taking off.
fantastic stuff and we'll pop details of, of how to join in the notes from this podcast but but as you say I think it's it's very easy to feel um, alone with this stuff and you know thank you for mentioning supervision it's something we talk about quite a lot in relation to mental health when we're having these conversations on the podcast uh, you know that the people are carrying around quite a lot of heavy stuff with them quite a lot of heavy responsibility yeah. as we've said a lot of these people are have got busy other aspects to their jobs as as well um and that it's really heartening to hear that there's 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 still energy and um enthusiasm for for getting together as a, as a community of professionals to to learn and um share knowledge in in this way um so so yeah we'll definitely put put some links to that and is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before closing andy um what I, what I would say is that um nothing that you don't already know but it's it's obviously tough in schools at the moment um you know I would urge you to look after yourselves and each other um make sure you commit to to having time for your well-being because you know the the adage of drawing from an empty well has never been more apt and you know Another thing that we we seem to struggle with in this country is we feel guilty about nurturing our well-being and and we shouldn't because nurturing our well-being means that we can be in the best place possible for the people that we work with as well as for ourselves and our families. Um, so nurturing our well-being isn't being selfish. It, it, it's a critical part of being the best version of ourselves that we that we can be. So do look after yourselves. Um, if there is anything that I can support you with, either through schools advisory service um, and do have a look at what we've got to offer, because we've got a whole range of, um, of free stuff, uh, particularly around governors and support for governors on the website. Um, or if you'd like to know more about the community and the work at the Carnegie Centre, then please do contact me. Um, we want to work with as many schools as possibly possibly can because we want to support schools to make the difference that we know that they're they're capable of making and it you don't have to do this on your own we're we're there with you fantastic stuff thank you so much andy and thank you very much for listening key voices is produced by the key giving education leaders the knowledge to act members of the key for school leaders can access hundreds of articles on the latest issues in education at thekeysupport.com and please tell us what you think of the podcast rate review and subscribe or email me at caroline.doherty at thekeysupport.com with your thoughts and suggestions.